found us again on Boomerangs. This is Ruth. This is Mike. And today we're going to be talking about Jojo Rabbit. The director's name is Taika <laughs> Watiti. Taika Watiti is his name. And he's a New Zealand director. He's half Maori and half Jewish. And he directed and wrote and actually acts in it as Adolf Hitler. And it's this strange mix of different kinds of genres. I read a bunch of reviews and they were so contradictory that a part of me was like, oh, I'm never going to like this. Why am I going to go see it? It sounds such a mishmash. But it, you it's, mean the contradictory, like some liked it and some didn't? Or some liked contradictory it and some didn't. in what movie did they see, actually? Yeah, and some, a lot of them said there are too many genres here oh, okay. for it to really oh, yeah. be pulled off. Uh-huh. I enjoyed it thoroughly. It is a farce, and it's a coming-of-age story, okay. and it's a war story. So all of those don't necessarily mesh 100%. Right. But the young boy whose name is Roman Griffin Davis, who plays Jojo, is amazing. Hmm. He's probably 10 or 11 years old. Wow. And he's in the whole movie. Wow. I think he's in every scene. There's another young actor named Archie Yates who plays his buddy who's phenomenal. Just a phenomenal little character actor. It's about a young boy whose imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler. And he's actually very funny. The boy or Adolf? Adolf. Oh. Is. Is it in present day? No, 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 no. It's Sorry. During it's during World War II? It's during World War II. And he's Brit- a it's British the kid? End of, it's during the end, the last months and days of, of the, the war. war. And he's a German kid. Oh, okay. He's in the Nazi oh. youth. Oh. And some people said that this seemed like if Wes Anderson made a, a war movie, a movie about World War II, this would be what it was. Uh. It does have those elements, those sort of fantastical elements, and it's very stylized in parts. Right, But I really enjoyed it. I just kind of took my critic hat off Mm -hmm. and just watched it and and, and enjoyed the performances. Scarlett Johansson is better than she's been in years, and Sam Rockwell is in it. He's fantastic. So it's got a great cast. Rebel Wilson is in it also. It's a lot. It's not like it just sort of unspools. There's a lot going on, but uh, a lot to think about also. So I say go. It's a th- one thumb up. I can't put my thumb up or down. <laughs> I have two, no thumb here. Two. <laughs> I'm an amputee. It's one, one and a half thumbs up. Maybe one and three quarters thumbs up. One, Definitely worth seeing though. One thumb up and some uh, definite interest on my part. Yeah. I love the trailers I've seen for it. It just looks so playful and fun. All of so- a little scary in that it has the Hitler stuff so much in your face. And that could go terribly wrong. It could be. It sounds like he handled it in a way that made it... It's very palatable. Did it seem shocking or... No, uh, no, it was very humorous. I shouldn't be laughing at this No, 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 not at all. It was very humorous. And it was was done to be taking Hitler down. Right. Like uh, something I was reading today reminded me that there's a long history of this stuff from To Be or Not To Be, which was the Lubitsch Uh film about Hitler that was a comedy. Right. But also from the producers, Springtime for Hitler. Definitely, that's the iconic one. And Hogan's Heroes. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. There's a a history of it, The Great Dictator, the Charlie Chaplin film about... True. One thing that I was thinking of is how most dictators hate to have themselves parodied or to be made fun of. And, you know, that's the thing that Trump cannot tolerate. That's right. Being mocked. It's like the the Trump baby. Yeah, because they're all about their image and the myth that is built around them. That's part of their power. And it's also humiliating uh, to be made fun of. Well, that's true for anybody, whether you're a sociopath or not. I know, I hate it when people... (laughs) 
but yeah, it's I, I would say it's in the realm of those other mm-hmm. pieces. Mm-hmm. Satirical. And, yeah. Yeah. Satirical and with other elements yeah. as well. Like I said, they don't all mesh 100%, but what does mesh is, is really, I think, very worthy. Cool. Yeah. I will check it out. There you go. Us boomers remember when it was okay to be a boomer. Oh, that's right. Yes. And now it's just, we're just okay boomers. We are being vilified. Yes, we are. It's terrible. I love it. One more reason <laughs> to feel like a victim. It works for me. (laughs) In case any of our listeners don't know, there is now a TikTok song called OK Boomer. And it's short. It's like 10 seconds long. Oh, yeah. But it has been taken up by, I guess, the world that isn't boomers Mm -hmm. to, yes, to to mock us and to shame us. And to be dismissive of our points of view. Yes. And I thought it would be good for us to talk about what it means to be a boomer, Mm. what it means to us to be boomers, since we're not traditional boomers. Right. Well, the article I read about this talked about how there's a blame thing happening about all these problems in the world around corporate greed and climate change and all the things that are messed up about the way the world is. And that it came from decisions we made people we voted or did not vote into office and political decisions we made. And it's true, bad stuff happened while we were the dominant generation, I guess. But I don't think you can paint it as a generational failure when in most cases you would have maybe 48 or 49% of boomers voting against some of the things that people are complaining about now. I can mean, you be specific? Well, let's take, say, corporate... Corporate greed? Yeah, that's pretty broad. How um, about decisions that affect climate change? Yeah. Or let's just say, for instance, the tax bill that passed just recently. Although, are we numerically dominant Are boomers a large part of the population right now? We are 79.4% of the population. Are you kidding me? No. Well, we're not having enough babies. (laughs) Well, it is our fault then. Yes, it's all our fault. (laughs) Oh, well, I take it all back. I didn't realize... No, we are we're we're the huge we're the we should have had more children. We're the bell of the bell curve. We're the bell of the bell curve. We're the elephant that was eaten by the snake. Okay, I didn't know we were so dominant. Yes, we are. Okay. People born born from 1945 to 1964. I just think it's one way to look at the way decisions have come down through our so-called democratic process is to break it out by age, but people break out by different characteristics that have nothing to do with age as well. Just different levels of education. I'm sorry. I said it wrong. I'm so sorry. We're 79.4 million of the population. We're not 79.4%. I was starting to think that sounded a little odd. I was going to have to go, I don't know, make a sperm donation (laughs) (laughs) just to do my part. You know, I was feeling very guilty. 79 million. Well, how many millions are in the country now? Like 200 about, million? Probably about 290 million. million. Okay. So we're so. over a quarter right. of it. I just think in, in every generation, there are bad people. Well, I won't even call them bad, even though I would be tempted to. But there are people who have a kind of a progressive view towards the world and towards society and towards the country and yes. towards maybe what they think the country should be about. And then there are conservatives and that tension is there in, in every generation, isn't it? That's true. Now, one of the interesting things about us as a generation is that we were the first ones to benefit from the affluence of the post-World War II era. Right. 
And so we grew up with affluence, right. although I didn't personally, but our right. generation basically did. Well, yes. And yet we rejected it because of the Vietnam War. I mean, we were the generation that protested Vietnam. And yet coming out of the Vietnam War, we are also the generation that went to work for Ronald Reagan's America mm -hmm. and corporations and became the consumer generation. Right. That's a big canon that the millennials level at us is that we're consumers and not really valuing things that are worthy. And the world's going kind of to shit because are we the last generation that did better than our parents economically? At some point, that triangle inverted. We expected to do better than our parents. And we did. And we uh, did. Statistically, I believe. Yes. And what I'm reading now today is that the younger generations are the first in a long time to actually not have as much material possession and wealth as Well, a as lot of that parents. has to do with the fact that their educations are being funded by huge loans. And oh, they right. have such debt when they graduate right. that that in and of itself is a wrecking ball to anybody's yeah. but then, future wealth. In that case, that would move someone to maybe be interested in voting for Elizabeth Warren for president because she's yes. all about changing that dynamic. Very specifically, she's into that. And I would be interested to know in the polling that's going on right now, when you look at her support, it would be really interesting to see how it breaks out yes, age-wide. that would be interesting. I don't know. I don't know I either. I think I read something that said that Biden has a lot of support from the younger folks. I think I read that, but don't quote me. That would I, be very surprising. Yeah. I know he has a lot of black support, but that's not a... I mean, he has older black voters right, right, in his corner. Right. I would be surprised, but I'll look that up. And It'd be really see. interesting to, to see the breakout of Elizabeth Warren's supporters. You know, Bernie has a lot of younger supporters. Yes, that's what, that's what I read. Oh, okay. It wasn't so Biden, it was Bernie. Yes. yes. Bernie has a lot of younger supporters. He has a lot of Latino supporters. Right. So anyway, but back to the age thing. But he is also, like Warren, about redistribution of wealth. Yes, he is. And I think that that's something that's really important. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we're going to be able to elect somebody who is for that. I'm right. starting to get more and more suspicious that we are going to elect a centrist. A bland, middle-of-the-road person that doesn't believe in anything. Well, not somebody who doesn't believe in anything, but somebody who isn't going to come in and really I like the pit bull. I like Elizabeth Warren. One of the things is our generation is going to be the last one. The effects of climate change are we're going to die while the Before earth is still yes mm -hmm. viable and the generations that come after are going to be struggling with the things that our policies had an effect on you know silent yeah. spring was written in the 60s right that was about chemical pollution and mm -hmm. and really took a hard look at what the chemical industries the oil industries were doing to our environment but can you lump a boomer like let's take the issue of the car emissions and how california voted to have more stringent requirements than the rest of the country because we take climate change more seriously and want to start reducing the carbon footprint. So can you lump boomers who are aware of that and supporting doing things, tangible things that actually help mitigate climate disaster with maybe a climate, or it doesn't have to be a different state, but well, Florida. Can, you, can you lump us or all Texas. together? Yeah, that's where I felt a little wronged by the well, I guess okay boomer thing. one could be more... I think we're more diversified. Drill, there's more strata. Yes, but during our generation yeah. and certainly during the happen. Reagan era, mm -hmm. that's We drove when, the big cars. It's true. And we supported 
started oil right. drilling. Right. And we used fossil right. fuels. That's right. So I get that there is anger. And, you know, we don't look at our parents' generation and say, you screwed it up for all of us. We did when we were growing up. Right. We did have that feeling that somehow the world was going to turn into swimming pools and Yeah, it's eyes. a big issue. We were under corporate forces that led to a lot of what's going on. Before we were very old, us boomers, when we were little kids, even maybe before, take, for instance, Los Angeles had an amazing public transit system. And we had all these rail lines that went from neighborhood to neighborhood and Glendale to downtown, Pasadena and everything. You could get around. They were all ripped out. And they weren't ripped out because of a generational view, I don't think. No, they were ripped out because the car companies wanted us to buy automobiles. And that's what I'm saying. So that wasn't attached to our generation. It happened when we were kids. So you could say, oh, well, then it's blamed on the World War II generation that allowed it to happen. But it's, I don't know. I just don't know how much you can blame a whole society for things that happen. But maybe you can. I have to say, I feel responsible. I don't. (laughs) I do as far as I'm part of the society. But I don't, there's something about tying it to age or generation that I don't need one more thing to feel guilty about. Well, guilt is a useless sentiment. I mean, that's that's the thing. Instead of pointing fingers at each other on age and political affiliation and all of that, we should all be getting past that because the stakes are so high now. That's very true. It really doesn't make sense to point a finger at one group or another group. As Maggie Smith said in, in, what was that Noel Coward play that was so great? Private Lives. Oh, I didn't see that. And she said... To this simpy uh, other female character in the play, don't quibble, Sybil. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to not quibble. We're, we have to get to the post-quibbling age. You've made outreach in that regard. You've gone out and talked to people that are not in your zone necessarily yes, politically. And, it's true. And, um, it's true. It can be gratifying. Yeah. It really can. Yeah. So and you've it actually can be taken very frustrating steps to do at times. I think that what you're saying is actually a point very well taken. That we need to band together yeah. to take care of the crises that we're facing. Yeah. We don't need to splinter apart. Right. That's not going to help anything. Or to group people into these maybe not so organic categories that are a little superficial and then point a finger and say, you're the problem. I would say that that's a, that's a fair take. That's a challenge for us that are on the progressive side too, though, because it's just so easy to do the reverse and to just say, well, say the Trump folks that won't change their opinion, no matter if he shoots somebody, how do you engage with that? How do you, how do you say, I want to build a bridge to that? It is a real challenge. And I think it is a challenge of our current lives is to be able to somehow reunite our country. That said, if we had direct elections where one person, one vote yes. was in force, yes. we wouldn't be having the conversation at all. Yeah. Well, that's a conversation for another day. Oh, gosh, I love to fear. <laughs> okay, rein me in. Pull me in. Okay. Okay. Next topic. Okay. Did I say this at the beginning, that we were going to talk about loneliness? Loneliness? I, I don't remember. I don't think I did, but it's a topic that came up. Nicholas Kristof wrote a column about it that was in the New York Times today, my... Bible. My, my newspaper of choice. And he mentioned that there is a minister of loneliness that was appointed in England. And her name, which is quite a name, is Baroness Barron. No wonder she's lonely. <laughs> <laughs> I would never go to a movie with someone named Baroness Barron. We have a problem with, with loneliness in, in our society. 
And it's a bona fide health hazard. Yes. And it's been identified as such with studies. So that's yes. that's progress right there. And it's, yes, it's been identified as something that causes your stress hormones to go up and is more dangerous, they said, than heart attacks and smoking 15 it cigarettes a day. It can affect your blood pressure and all kinds of things. Yeah. And maybe not more dangerous than a heart attack, but more dangerous than heart disease. High, heart disease, yeah, or high blood pressure. Yeah. I'm going to come out and identify myself as someone who has suffered from loneliness mm-hmm. since I was a kid. I just grew up in a household where there was so much chaos and acrimony that being by myself was the preferred Of state. course, because when you come from dysfunction like that, which I do too, isolation is a way to protect yourself. And then what happens, what's happened to me? It becomes chronic. It becomes chronic. And what's happened to me, what I've realized is that because it was my safety place as a kid and I used it to survive and protect myself. My body and my brain associates isolation with safety. So it's oh. hard for me to break out of it sometimes oh, because even though intellectually I know I should be with others, I have to work at overcoming the impulse to shut myself off from others because something in me says, you'll be safe if you're by yourself. But there's a difference between solitude and loneliness. And Mm. I'm wondering, do you feel that when you're lonely, you're not able to reach out? Or how do you experience that? You know, I haven't experienced painful loneliness lately, except when I've been traveling alone. I've noticed when I go to like my trip to Las Vegas, Uh where it was like, dang, I really feel by myself. I really feel unconnected, like I've gone out of the orbit. But I also think I have a high tolerance for being alone and I might call it solitude but I think it wouldn't hurt me to make an effort to be a little more plugged in with others. Okay. That said, I do a lot of stuff. I have a choral group and I have my support groups. And Yeah, um, you're active in a lot of of different... But you had, uh, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to minimize what you've said you experienced, but you have had the closeness of family and you have those relations still. And that's something I've never had. You mean of my daughters? Yeah. Oh, yes, that's true. But they live on another coast. That's true. That's difficult right there. Right. You know, that, that is... Is kind of a hole in my life right yes, there. Yes. But one of the things that I will say is when I've experienced loneliness and I don't experience it so much now, although I expect that I will experience it when you're in France over, over Thanksgiving, but I felt it was my fault. I felt that there was something about me that was unlovable, unlikable, mm-hmm. um, that there was some reason that I was lonely. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're learning now is that it's a real societal flaw mm-hmm. that we are so divorced from our communities, from churches. They mentioned bowling leagues in, right. in that article, right. in, in Nicholas Kristof's article. Yeah. And we don't have the ties to our community that we used to. Interconnectedness. Because we don't need it. I'm putting quotes around need. We don't need it anymore in the sense that we can be self-sufficient materially. Yes. Um, with our phone and our TV and our delivery systems yes. and Grubhub. And I'm not saying we capitalism is a, a joke. Right, right. I'm saying it is we capitalism wants person. us all to have our own places right. and our own coffee makers and so our own. We, yes. And that's American too, not only capitalist. Yes. American, the American myth is self-made man or self-made person. Yes. Yeah, exactly. The rugged individualist is the highest thing we're supposed to aspire to. Yes. And none of us stop to realize that that could make us sick. 
And I think it, it does make millions of us sick. Right. And it's, it's a like hard cigarettes. thing to... We just thought cigarettes were just this fun thing that calmed you down when you smoked them and it was fun. Yeah. We didn't realize they were killing us. Yeah. Point. Now we're realizing that our rugged individuality, is kill, individualism, is killing us too. And I think we need a minister of loneliness here in the United States. Yeah. Or several Right. Or one for every state. Yeah. Maybe one for every city. Right. I liked how uh, one thing it said in the article I thought was really brilliant was they've learned that you can, in England, they're doing this already, you can form these environments that lend themselves yes. to people connecting more. One is a, you have a special park bench called a group bench, or I forget the name of it, but the point of that bench is you're supposed to talk to the other people on that bench. Yes. That's kind of kind of what that bench is about. Yes. And they said when you're putting groups like that together, <laughs> means, don't, me don't, don't mention call loneliness. them the lonely group. Yes. yes. Lonely group is meeting on Tuesday at noon. <laughs> you know, you put it around the thing like bowling or flowers or yes. whatever. Dog walking. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had to do that in my life because mm -hmm. I'm connected to various different different groups yeah and that is the antidote for me for loneliness that's right but if I didn't belong to those groups I think I would be having a hard time right I want to talk about different kinds of loneliness like for instance I was extremely lonely in the last phases of my marriage right that was a tremendously lonely period for me and I just remember thinking being on my own couldn't be lonelier than this feeling that I'm in this marriage with someone who doesn't hear me or see me mm. And I found that to be true. I found that being on my own is not the loneliest place to be. Oh, absolutely not. Well, we, because we learned it in families where we were by ourselves, yes. even though we were in the presence of others. Yes, that's true. You know? I didn't realize then, that we had such similar experiences. I think so. And then, we, and then I believe, unconsciously, for me anyway, that I, in, in a weird way, I sought out that same experience uh, as an adult. Huh. Um, but I like to believe that's because of something I heard from one of my YouTube gurus that something in us is has a drive towards wholeness and that we naturally want to recreate that situation, not because we want to suffer from it, but because we want to find a way to surmount it or heal it or find a, find oh. a different way. You know, huh. I don't know how valid that is, not being a psychologist or anything, but um, this one, one uh, YouTube guy I've listened to, he makes that point that, yes, we do repetition of those toxic situations, but not to harm ourselves. We're something, it's a drive towards wholeness, wholeness. I like to think of it that way. Interesting. I would have thought that it was a drive toward the familiar. Well, I, I agree. That we recreate the familiar because yeah. it is familiar. Yeah. But I like your interpretation better. Maybe both together, really. We, we, maybe. We're, we're drawn to it because it's familiar, but something in us is hoping maybe this time, you know. <laughs> Just like Liza. I'm going to sing. <laughs> You know what? What I thought about when I read that was the loneliness I feel in the so-called gay community, and I always oh. think it's my fault that I feel alone in the gay community. That I don't relate to the guys at the fault line. That I feel like I'm on a meat rack and I can't measure up. That I is don't the relate. Fault line a, a bar? Oh, it's a yeah, it's a kind of a, a leathery, oh okay, uh, hypermasculine aesthetic gay bar. Okay, and it's it's kind of a central watering hole for the so-called gay community. Well, you learn that. There's the bar community, and that doesn't really necessarily mean the gay community, because the bar community is a small subset of the larger gay community. 
And you know, when I have talked to some of my gay friends about the isolation I feel or the not fitting in within the gay community, they go, oh, me too. I've never felt like I belong. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, that helped me because I realized I'm not so pathological. I'm just one of the guys that doesn't feel like he's part of the group. But I also wonder sometimes, am I choosing to not feel at home in that group because of the programming I had when I was young about how awful it is to be gay and how wrong? That's possible. One thing that I was thinking is... Tolerance, tolerance. The idea that I think as a younger person, I was more lonely because I was less tolerant of other people. Mm -hmm. And because I didn't understand my own boundaries. Mm -hmm. And now that I have boundaries, mm -hmm. not 100%, but I'm working toward them. Mm -hmm. It makes me more tolerant of both myself and other people. <laughs> and being tolerant is what it's taken me to reach out to be a friend to someone else. Right. Even though we may not mesh 100%. Right. I don't know if that makes sense. You're squinting, so I can't. No, I'm it. thinking about how boundaries can help you have a better link with others and how counterintuitive that is, but yet how yes. true it is. Yes. Because that way, if you have the boundary, you don't have to run away from the person because you're afraid that their being will invade you in some way. So true. So you're safe. Exactly. Being older has helped me, or yeah. being more mature, as I right. like to say, has helped me understand that. I would say that my low-grade depression, that that was tied to my feelings of isolation and loneliness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that being desperately depressed was tied to feelings that I was absolutely on my own mm -hmm. and that others did not care for me. And that was a vast exaggeration. And part of the process of growing out of that was realizing that people did care. Yeah. My friends, you. Right. I'm just thinking of when you were 16 and you moved into your own apartment. So that was something related to your family experience where the, the, certainly the message there was, I'm on my own. I'm not, yes. you know, I'm not worthy of being in connection with others. Yes. That but I'm... every all of us looking at you doing it, we saw this strong, independent person doing this amazing thing. Oh, that's so you funny. Know? But, that's funny yeah. but I can see now as we have this conversation that for you, it may not have been such an exciting thing. It was exciting and terrifying. And I think that being rejected at that time or being told that I could indeed live on my own was very hard because at that age, your brain is still developing. You're still mm -hmm. processing things in a way that is part childish and partly adult. And it's it was a very fragile time for me to be living right. on my own. Right. So it's interesting that you remembered that. Yeah, yeah. It just came to me about isolation because there you were on your own. You know, Grant High School too was one of my first deep experiences of loneliness when I got there because I was so looking forward to getting to Grant High School because it was a public school. It was huge. It had 3,000 students and I came from my little private school where there were 32 students in the ninth grade. And I, it was like going to the big city for me. I, was, I felt like Marlo Thomas in that girl. But the reality of it was not at all what I expected. And I was so deeply, primally lonely. I would come home and cry at night because all these people knew each other and I didn't know a single one. And I couldn't connect. And when did that change? It changed when I went to... You used to have to have these meetings with these counselors to get your classes. And I mentioned to him that I like going to the music center to see musicals. And he put me in drama. Oh. And because he put me in drama, I got in with people who were weird like me. And that was my that was my tie-in. Oh, Thank God I said that to him. Yeah. Or he would have put me in the math club and I would be crying every night still. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little miracle. Yeah, it's kind but, of kismet. But there's you know, loneliness, it's it, it was happening then too. Yeah. 
Well, it definitely dominated my yeah. early years. It's but one I, of my first memories. Yeah, I guess what Christoph is saying in his article is that it's become more widespread and it's become recognized as a health hazard. Yes, and I think that part of it really is this idea that we are involved in these sort of virtual groups mm -hmm. that really don't help. It, it doesn't help to be on Facebook. Well, it's it can be harmful if you're having the experience that they described in the article was you go on and people, we talked about your friend who did or does this, you go on and you see people who are posting all about the fabulous things they're doing. Yes. And it makes you feel bad about yourself because you don't feel like your life measures up to all that. And you don't realize that people are just showing their greatest hits. They're not sure that no one goes on Facebook, except I did a few times, and says, oh, I had a drag out fight with so-and-so and I feel like a piece of shit. Here's a picture of me <laughs> sobbing in my bathroom and throwing up because I drank too much. Here, here's a photo of me. No one does that. No, you're right. You know, like I did yesterday or Friday, I said, here I am at the Huntington Library in a Japanese garden feeling peaceful. I said, 50 shades of green. And so now someone's gonna see that and go, God, Mike Lambert leads a charmed leads a charmed life. Well, you do leave a charmed life. <laughs> well, I do, but it rarely involves the Huntington Library. But you do that compare and despair with Facebook. It's very easy to do that. Yes, and I think that's what more it's there for. I, I I feel that that's what it's there for, other than for connecting with your high school. I always thought that about friends. Twitter and stuff too. I do believe all of these social platforms have valid uses can have valid uses for business purposes, for promotion of things you're doing, for increasing your circle of friends to include people you knew from the past. I think there's some good. I don't think it's all bad. It's a great topic. It's interesting, this loneliness thing. I'd like to keep uh, an eye on it. Well, I think it's worthy of more than one conversation mm -hmm. because it's so pervasive. Right. And it's also, I think there's shame about it. Yes, I definitely. Think that, that and, that, and then it, it snowballs. It perpetuates itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a loop. Yeah. It's interesting when these when these issues get identified as health issues, somehow it's easier to grapple with them and take them seriously. And I think some of the shame gets reduced. It's true. And, you know, it's like the difference between physical health and mental health. Mm -hmm. Once we tie them together, then somehow That's it right. becomes more... The shame level of it. decreases. Yes, because it's an organic mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I think that loneliness is an organic state, but I think that it is, that it does affect us mm -hmm. in a way that is really holistic. So let's keep talking about this okay. because I think there's a lot more to say about it. Definitely. And I think that's going to do it for us boomers. Thank you so much for coming on this ride with us. Thanks for interacting with us. <laughs> reducing our loneliness factor. That's right. For this hour. <laughs> and we hope we did the same for you. Hope so. So thank you and we'll talk to you again in a week. Bye boomers and everybody. Bye bye. Ah!